First, and then I will read the passage. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you that uh, this word comes to us not as some mere ancient text to study, but one uh, that is living and active because your spirit is at work in us now. We thank you for the promise to transform us and to continue to remake us in the image of your son as we gather around your word together. Uh, We come to you needy this morning asking that you would bless us, uh, that your spirit would be our teacher and that we would see Jesus, and that we would love Him more this morning. And we pray in His name. Amen. Okay, a quick review before we read the passage. Uh, Remember, 1 Timothy is a letter written from Paul to Timothy, who is uh, remaining in Ephesus to deal with false teaching that's occurring there. And this false teaching has some kind of Jewish-Christian roots to it. There's this speculation about these myths and about these... um, looking into the law for some sort of mysterious uh, extra meaning that's taking place. Am I too loud for y'all? I feel and sound loud to me. Um, Okay. Um, Yeah, and the, the problem over and over again is not just that the content of this teaching is false... Um, but th- there's an added uh, problem, and that's that the result of this false teaching is showing itself in these vain discussions, these arguments, and these divisions that are taking place in the community. And so ultimately, it's a denial of the gospel. Paul says, though, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, that the true gospel always results in love. It manifests itself in love. And so um, these false teachers had some kind of at least... Um, semi-official teaching role in the church, maybe even elders. Uh, There's also a lot in this book about how to conduct oneself in the household of God. That's how Paul puts it in chapter 3. And so we've talked a good bit about those specific offices that he outlines, requirements for them. Um, Keith moved into this next section last week at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, dealing some with with the asceticism or this, this heresy that was taking place there, that, that says uh, that the created order is not good, marriage should probably be abstained from, and also you need to not eat these foods. And the thought was, if you abstain from these things, then you're going to experience some real spiritual growth that's not going to come in any other way. Uh, so that's where we've been up to this point. This morning we'll, we'll look at the end of chapter 4. You can take a look there, it's on your sheet, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. 
Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Okay, this is going to be a little bit of a stretch to get us going here this morning, um, so bear with me. Um, Paul makes this reference in here to this uh, bodily training and calls us to training in godliness. So here's my lame intro for us uh, as a question. Why is, uh, is bodily training such an obsession for us? Why the obsession with fitness and exercise? I'm going to try and tie this in. So we can live longer. Yeah, we kind of fight. We, we, we want to push back the effects of aging, death, the fall in some ways. Live longer, yeah. Sorry. Do what now? Yeah, better quality of life while being healthy. Yeah. Um, our bodies matter. God created us in, body, in an embodied way. Uh, there's actually a bearing on quality of life. Yeah. Good. Sandra, do you have some? Yeah, there's vanity involved in this too. She said because we want to look good. Uh, we want to perfect ourselves so that people see us and admire us and are attracted to us. Yeah, Beth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So the yeah, there's this um, particular activities that are going to require uh, repeated practice so that muscle memory kicks in, where there's some things that you just can't do apart from that. Uh, and so devoting oneself to that's going to be important for particular ac- um, exercises. Yeah. Um, are there any? <laughs> I don't. I don't even want to ask it. Are there any CrossFit people in here? Maybe not. All right, we got one. Um, okay, so I found this article this week that why saying why CrossFit is like a secular church. Um, if you're familiar with it, uh, there are great things about CrossFit, but. It was really interesting because this, uh, this lady posted four reasons or four aspects of how CrossFit is like a secular church. And there, there's this desire for community. You're working out with other people. And she wasn't like all down on CrossFit or anything. These were just observations she was making. This desire to work out with other people and have this communal participation together in something. Um, there's a united purpose that, that everyone has to get healthier and all this. So they're, they're united at this purpose together. Uh, they're working towards transformation in some way. Uh, as Alice said, there's some desire even to, uh, to, to push back the effects of death. Uh, we want to see transformation take place. And then she said, too, uh, there's a legalism that goes with it as well. Uh, so there can be a, a real sense of shame uh, if you don't live up to the standards of, uh, of CrossFit. So... Um, so here, here's where we're going to go with this. The, the, Paul makes some reference to that here. Um, he, he's, going to, he's writing to Timothy specifically, but there's application for us here. And the expectation, of course, for the whole letter is that it would be read to the church. So Paul is say, saying these things specifically to Timothy, but there's going to be uh, there, there are commands and imperatives that come to us as well in the midst of it. And so what he's really saying is, Uh, he's calling Timothy to bring his life into full accord with the true gospel. 
Um, and so that's our focus, to let our lives be shaped by this true gospel, to live in accord with that. And so he's going to give some commands to us in that context. Remember, this would be really important because the true gospel is that which is going to result in, in love. There's going to be substantial uh, life change, properly qualified, that's going to take place that's not happening uh, in the case of these false teachers. And so he, he's calling Timothy to bring his life into accord. And he's going he's to do that by this training. And he's going to do this uh, also by modeling or exemplifying the gracious effects of the gospel uh, in our lives. So live in accord with the gospel of grace. Allow this story of the gospel to shape your own life. Um, so two, two headings that we'll look at this passage under. Uh, the first is to teach, teach and train in 6 through 10, and then in uh, 11 through 16, there's teach and model, or teach and exemplify. Okay, so first, the call to teach in verse 6. If you look back there, put these things before the brothers. What are these things being said? Um, it's likely all of what Paul has said up to this point, um, and then even what he will say uh, later on here. To put this true teaching, this content of the gospel, before the brothers, um, and since then, he said, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, having been or being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine you've followed. So he says here that Timothy's going to do this by being trained. That actually could or maybe even should be translated as being nourished or feeding upon the words of faith and of the good doctrine. So th this is the way in which Timothy is going to carry out this task you need to know that it was really tempting uh, to go the nutrition diet route to seek, seek, stick with this whole uh, exercise theme, which I didn't. Um, but he's going to be nourished by these words of, of, true, of the faith. And that definite article is important because he's saying this is the true content of the gospel here. This rich, life-giving, faith-sustaining word of the gospel. Eat those words. Live by them. That's what's going to enable you to carry out what you're being called to here. That is uh, the faith and these, uh, this correct doctrine. So feed on it and put it before the church. So then he, he moves on here in 7 through 10 to this call to train. A couple of commands. Uh, the first, reject or have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. And if you remember, this goes back to chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul has said that there, there's these some sort of uh, heresy or myth uh, involving the Old Testament law. There's a misuse of it. And so one commentator says, whatever these myths were, they're unhistorical and they're untruthful. And so that's obviously the problem with them. But there's some sort of appeal of a myth or of a new idea that's taking hold. Uh, quick question for us. Why, why is that a danger for the church at any stage? The appeal of a new idea or a potential myth or new take on something. Okay, yeah. Yeah, where it becomes a distraction from, from, what, uh, fr from the God of the Bible as he set forth. Yeah, where, where we would be so focused on whatever this new thing is. Yeah, Ron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, not wanting to deny the Spirit continues to work, but saying, okay, if you've come up with something radically new, 
uh, as to this take on the Bible, uh, you should and we should have great pause with that, to, uh, to think uh, arrogantly that we would come up with something that's, that's so new. Yeah. What else? How about just our, uh, our fascination with novelty in general? Um, I, I sense this in myself, where there's kind of always this desire, you, you know, you kind of like want something new. We're afraid of being bored, or afraid of being kind of on a, on a set path that doesn't have this newness to it. And so th- there's kind of the, this craving at all times for something new, something different, something novel. And I think that, that plays into the way in which um, we might show interest or be um, lulled into, uh, into these particular new ideas or myths. Yeah. Okay, so this, uh, the second command then in, this, in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. I want to spend a good amount of time here because this is a lot of what Timothy or what Paul is saying in this passage. Um, to train yourself for godliness, and he's going to pick up this athletic metaphor in a moment. Um, question for us. What are some of our biggest hindrances uh, to, or maybe say it this way, what are our biggest problems when we hear that command of training for godliness? What difficulties arise? What are our biggest hindrances to engagement in that sort of training? Sorry, say again, Jay. It takes effort. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I've got a couple categories there we can kind of uh, place these things under. That would certainly be, that's a personal problem. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're a laziness, where the, the, uh, the effort necessary to expend um, is something that we might not be that excited about and makes it hard for us. What else? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, those are, yeah, maybe even two things there that, um, or maybe just that we can't bring about this change in ourselves. It would seem like a futile attempt at maybe even like a self. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, maybe that even connects to um, a difficulty with seeing how God or how these things would, uh, w- would put us in a place of God bringing about change in our lives so that it could seem like this futile attempt at self-perfection. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so it's maybe unrealistic. It's not... We don't have time to be doing whatever this training entails, um, and that's a problem. Yeah, Jacob. Yeah, so maybe even not engaging in them because uh, there's a, a fear of that sort of pride going into it. Yeah, that's great. That's, yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yes, I was I was hoping and expecting that one to come up. Um, yeah, he said that 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 we are afraid of falling into a legalism where um, and and if you're not familiar with that term, that's that this idea that uh, by that our standing before God is based on what we do, that our good behavior merits God's favor in our lives probably not that crass, but um, so many of us have that experience 
at some point in your Christian life, maybe in an ongoing way, of uh, equating your spiritual disciplines or these practices of spiritual formation with thinking, God's really a lot happier with me if I would just read my Bible. Uh, he's a lot more happy with me when I've actually prayed. Yeah, and so maybe we, we don't engage in them because we're fearful of that. Maybe it takes another form of saying we do engage with them for that same reason, as a, as a hope to earn God's favor. Yeah, Max. Yeah, 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 so we could fall into patterns and habits of not doing those things and continue in them rather than doing what, um, what may be the difficult thing of giving ourselves to practices that would cost us something. Yeah, yeah. What, was there one more? No? Okay. Yeah, um, I, I think all those are, are huge, and I don't think I have much more down than that. Um, yeah, maybe a, fe- a fear of failure in them. Maybe you've given yourself, that's probably the only one I have here that we haven't already covered, that, that we have given ourselves to these things in the past, and you have failed at them so many times that we just think, I don't want to do that again. I know, I, I've read this book before, I know how it ends, uh, and it's not good. So I'm going to spare myself that and not, do, not try and give myself to these practices. So we can read that thing, that this, con- or this command from Paul and think, oh, train for godliness? I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Um, two other passages I have there just for reference on your sheet, one from Colossians 2 and another from Matthew 15. This may be just described as a fear of practicing these things apart from Jesus, sort of falling into a, um, a view of self-perfection apart from Jesus. And again, that's relevant given this context of the letter where um, they are pursuing some sort of spiritual growth apart from Christ. That, that This asceticism is, is, has something at least to do with that. Um, good quote here from Willard, too, that, that he, the way he talks about it is sort of a reductionist view of the gospel, where we can view the gospel as merely being a get-out-of-hell-free card, and so we kind of, we miss the relevance of how the gospel might actually transform us now as those united to Jesus and indwelt by his Spirit. So he says, the result is that we have multitudes of professing Christians who well may be ready to die but obviously are not ready to live and can hardly get along with themselves, much less with others. So, in this very Willard-like fashion. Um, so, uh, we have this, sometimes this disconnect between the Bible's description of the Christian life and our experience of it. Um, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane call that the gospel gap that we all suffer from to a degree. Okay, so... Those might be some problems that arise for us when we read this. We hear what Paul says and we think, okay, I'm not, I don't quite know about this. Um, look at what he says in verse 8, and we'll try and continue to um, flush this out some. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, what Paul is not saying... He's not saying that physical exercise is bad, um, as much as we might wish that he's saying that. Uh, He's not saying that, nor is he saying, and this is important given the context, he's not saying that spiritual disciplines that might involve the body in some way 
are necessarily bad. Um, he was not saying that. Um, nor is he referring to, you know, it, some commentators think he's referring to the ascetic practices that were just referenced in the beginning of chapter 4. That he's saying, those are the problem. These ways that we've misunderstood these spiritual practices. I think some commentators argue against that, and I think rightly by saying, if he's talking about these ascetic practices, he's not going to say they are of some value. He's going to say they are of no value. Okay? So he actually is saying some bodily training and making some kind of athletic reference here uh, that, that it is the case that bodily training can be of some value. But here's the difference. It has value now for us in this life. Training in godliness, on the other hand, has value now and for all eternity. Uh, godliness ha- has, not, has value not just now, but as training for this eternal life in God's kingdom. So as we engage in these practices and, be, and seek to put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's work of transformation in us, we actually become the people that we will be for all eternity in God's new creation. The sort of people that we will be as we indwell the new heavens and the new earth. And so there's something hugely encouraging about that in that it's not just a temporary benefit or something that's only going to be beneficial for a little while, but it's something that that is going to, uh, that that is a lifelong, and by lifelong I mean like eternal lifelong sort of endeavor that's going to continue to bear fruit over time. Um, And that's what he's saying at the end of verse 8. He holds promise for the present life, yes, it's good, and also for the life to come, or for life in the age to come in God's new creation. So a couple of quotes that get at this, the application I've got for us, is giving yourself to the practices of spiritual formation prepare us for life in the kingdom. They enable us to live more fully in that kingdom now, or give ourselves to life in that kingdom more fully now, is probably the better way to say it. And there's an eternal trajectory of that. So a quote from Willard, We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through, and I maybe would say that does, not should, just, but that does come through our relationship with Jesus. So we we are acting in accord with this kingdom life that is ours. Yeah, let me read this quote real quick, Andrew. And then another one from Wright that's great having to do with this new creation. Christian holiness consists of not trying, sorry, let me say that again. Christian holiness consists not of trying as hard as we can to be good, but of learning to live in the new world created by Easter. That's a great way to say that. Obviously, it does require effort, but it's also a a way of which we we are learning to live in God's new world that he is bringing about and will fully bring about in the new heavens and new earth. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, one for which I don't know if I have a very good answer. Um, let me try. Um, okay, for, for one, I think uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, well, let me back up. So, we, we die and what is said about heaven, and I put heaven in quotes because that's, I mean, the way Paul describes it in Philippians is that wherever we are, we're never going to be apart from the Lord. Um, but, so we, we go to be with the Lord um, and are in that moment at, at, fr- separated from our body, which ultimately is not good in the end. Um, it's good in, in, in that we are, uh, we are free from sin and we are with Jesus. And the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts this, he calls it the intermediate state, where we are with God, um, we are with God uh, in that moment. Um, what we are longing for even there um, is the resurrection of our bodies where we will inhabit a resurrected, glorified body. Okay? Um, and that's what all the saints that have gone before us are longing for right now as well. They are free from sin, but they also are longing for the new heavens and the new earth. So 1 Corinthians 15 can become really helpful and important there. We're at the end of that, uh, that chapter that is all about the resurrection. Paul says, know that the, lab- you, the labor you've done in the Lord is not done in vain. So there's great mystery as to what that continuity is going to look like into the new heavens and the new earth, but Paul wants us to know that there is some sense of continuity to this and that that means your labor now is not in vain. And so that's, I think, an important way to say this, that, there's, that, that um, yes, we will be glorified. God will comp- complete his work of redemption in us and restoration and that we will be free from sin, and the image of God will be fully remade and restored in us, and we will inhabit glorified bodies in a glorified new world. Um, and so I think uh, that's an important positive sort of reinforcement to the, in response to the person who might say, well, I don't really see the benefit of doing any of this now. The other side is to say the attitude of I don't care about my life now is one that would betray a... Uh, a faith in Jesus that's not a saving faith. Um, because the way the Bible talks about salvation is that or is we, are, we are united to Jesus. We are united to Him by faith. And, and that is not just for our justification, our being declared forgiven and righteous, but it's also our sanctification and ultimately our glorification where Jesus by His Spirit is at work in us, giving us and transforming us our desires as well. So in terms of like conscious uh, what it's like in the in, um, uh, when we're with Jesus in heaven awaiting the resurrection, I don't have any idea, um, but that there is some continuity there. Um, real quick here, and we'll move on, because that was... Yeah, and to qualify that rightly is to say that these good works that we show forth give evidence to the saving faith that we have in union with our Savior Jesus. And so, yes, it is a whole of a life transformed that, is, uh, that shows itself to be evidence of what Jesus has done for us, which is the way in which we enter into the kingdom, Jesus and his work alone.
Let me, uh, let me move on. We can talk more about those things, but this, uh, this is important. I think it's an important conversation because it does have some bearing on our perspective for why would we pursue these things at all. And I think, I think the resurrection makes a, is a really important part of that, and that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is huge for that reason. Um, okay, so that's uh, verse 8. Uh, that is actually, and this is a bit, there's some debate in the commentaries about this, but verse 9, we've got another trustworthy, and, uh, trustworthy saying that's deserving of full acceptance. Um, what's like, that saying is what he has just said in verses 7 and 8, um, rather than what comes, a, comes ahead. There are some reasons for that. Uh, but 7 and 8, I think, are that trustworthy saying, that one that's deserving of full acceptance. Here's verse 10 for us. We've got another big issue. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So I have five-ish possible interpretations. There are more. Um, and some of these overlap. That's why there's the ish. Um, so he, here are some possibilities uh, as to how we can understand what is admittedly a difficult verse one, it could be that Paul's saying God will save every single person. And those that have belief and faith in Christ now are the ones that benefit from it, but ultimately everybody's going to be saved. The problem, of course, with that is that it runs contrary to, the other, to other parts of the Bible and of other things that Paul himself has written. Um, we've got a couple of verses that, that point to that, uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Thessalonians 1. Um, so we need to rule this one out as not being what the whole of the Scripture teaches. By the way, this is a great example of a place where we need to let the clearer parts of Scripture uh, help us to understand those that are less clear. So Scripture interprets Scripture for us, so it's important to look elsewhere to help ourselves understand verse 10 and not just take it in isolation. Number two... Here's a possibility, um, and this is, this is a true statement, it might not be what Paul is saying, that God is in principle and potentially the Savior for everyone. In other words, the, the, what's being said here is that God alone is Savior. The only way in which uh, salvation is possible is that God alone um, brings it about through the death, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Um, and then so maybe that would be saying that the only ones who are actually saved then are those who believe in the gospel. Uh, So that's one possibility. Uh, I don't think that's the best one. Uh, Number three, uh, it's said by some that that, uh, Christ died for all people, without qualification, all people, but when Paul says, uh, especially those who who believe, he's saying it's only those who believe who actually receive the benefits of it. Um, here, here's the, the big problem with this. There are multiple passages to which we could look that would say otherwise, but there's a theological issue that may be simplest to point out. Um, so the, the question becomes, if that's the case, if Jesus died for all people, and yet only some actually believe in him and receive those gifts, and we understand Jesus' atoning work to be bearing the judgment and curse for sin then what about those people that don't ever put their faith in Jesus? What we believe the Bible to teach about them is that they will endure condemnation for their sins, right? They will endure judgment for their sins. But if Jesus already died for those sins, then how is this, how is this sin being paid for twice? Okay? That's the issue. That's John Owen's argument 
and the death of death and the death of Christ. Uh, it's what he calls double jeopardy. You can't pay for something twice. Um, so that, that's the problem with understanding that verse in that way. And again, we could look at, there's some, you could just jot down John 6. There's some good stuff there as well uh, that Jesus says that helps us out. Uh, number four. Here, I think these next two are likely possibilities that fit together for us. Um, and the first one has to do with a um, translation issue. It's God is the Savior of all people. And this word there, rather than being translated as especially, should instead be, and this comes from um, word studies of extra-biblical literature, should actually be translated namely, or that is. So it would say, God is the Savior of all people, that is, those who believe. Okay? Um, so, namely, those who believe. So that there's not a distinction. Those who are all people are those who believe. Where Paul is specifying that. That fits much better theologically, of course, with the rest of the Bible. Faith is absolutely necessary to receive salvation. That's categorically clear in the New Testament, of course, and the Old as well. Um, and it fits with the explanation in the context of 1 Timothy, which then points to number 5, that God is the Savior of all sorts of people. Remember what he said in chapter 2, what Paul says there. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That God wants all sorts of people to come to this saving knowledge um, of Jesus and put their faith in him for salvation. So I think four and five are the best ways to go about that. This is an admittedly difficult verse. Um, we have like seven minutes left, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I'm happy to talk more about this afterwards if you have questions, comments, etc. about it. Um, okay, the second half of this passage then. Uh, the first half is teach and train. Second is teach and model. So this whole section is filled up with a lot more imperatives, these commands given by Paul. There are ten of them, actually. They're more narrowly focused on Timothy than what's come before, and so he's, he's providing a helpful focus for the call of a minister. Um, and so what one commentator says is that th there are a hundred good things that a minister could be doing. What Paul does right here is narrow the focus to things that are give, give, or, uh, give Timothy some priorities here. Um, so uh, let me, I'll ask this, and then we'll, uh, we'll run through these couple of lists here, the call to teach and the call to model. Why would Paul uh, emphasize here both teaching and life in this section? You think generally why that would be important, both uh, teaching and life. Uh, think generally as to why that's important, and then also contextually for the situation occurring at Ephesus. What are some reasons Yes, yes, the way you live out your life demonstrates your, your own personal belief in what it is that you're teaching. But we could also say that it, um, it bears witness to the, to the truth of what you're saying and teaching as well. Um, in other words, if, it, how you, um, if you're making a claim about what life is to look like in Christ, and, let you, and, let, and yet your life looks completely contrary to that in every way, that has something to say about whether what you're actually uh, teaching is worth its salt, right? So there's some connection to the truth of the message and how and whether it's embodied. Yeah, so that's going to be really, really important. What else? Uh, 
How about the, just the situation in Ephesus, remember? Um, that the problem is, is that the, there is bad fruit that is coming about from this false teaching that's taking place. And so it makes sense that Paul wants to say, command and teach these things. It's critical that you teach what is the true gospel message, and at the same time, show that that true gospel message results in love. Demonstrate, uh, give example to um, how this works itself out in real life. So, okay, first, call to teach, verse 11, 13, 14, and 16. Command to teach these things. Devote yourself, he says in verse 13, to these three things. To the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Why would public reading of Scripture be important? Didn't have Bibles. Yeah, so uh, they, they would have uh, these texts of the Old Testament being read, but it's also likely that at this point, because of when Timothy's written, that there's, there is New Testament Scripture that, that would be read publicly. Yes, yeah, so that, that's happening. Public reading of Scripture. Um, exhortation. Why would that be important? Do what? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and so a lot of times when we hear exhortation, it can kind of have a negative uh, feel to it. Like you think, almost at least I think, like, is that like a rebuke or something? Like I'm exhorting you? Um, there is that sort of negative aspect to it that would be a corrective, but it's also a positive uh, bringing of comfort to somebody as well. So it'd be, it could be this, um, this encouragement and strengthening of a person to apply these things, appropriate these things, uh, this teaching of Scripture. Respond to this public reading um, by, enable, or by allowing it to show forth in your life. And then teaching, that's going to show, I mean, that's a pretty obvious one. There's this, con, uh, the, this necessary conveying of intellectual content um, that's going to take place, particularly important in the context of Ephesus where false teaching is an issue. Okay, verse 14 then, he goes on to say, do not neglect the gift that you have, this gift that's given by God um, that's come through this prophecy and the laying on of hands of Timothy. Um, this, is why, this, this is why we, when we ordain somebody, lay hands. It has its roots um, in this passage and some others. But, uh, so this is a huge, a huge point here for, uh, for Timothy to not neglect the gift that he, that he has. Um, okay, and then the call to model, verses 12 and 15. Let no one despise you, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So you can imagine the scenario here. Uh, Timothy is probably in his 30s. Maybe he was younger. Most think he's probably early to mid-30s. Um, and you think Paul has left him behind in a situation to confront these false teachers who had some official capacity in the church. And you can, you can imagine a scenario like... Uh, I'm not going to listen to this guy. This guy's in his 30s. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, I, I know what I'm, as a false teacher, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to let this guy have any sort of influence of this congregation at all. They're going to listen to me instead. Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Don't let them despise you for your youth because this true gospel must be proclaimed. This false teaching must be, uh, must be contested. And so he's to do this 
by setting the believers an example in that second half of verse, verse 12. So he's saying, let your life speak for itself. Don't respond provocatively. Show yourself to be mature in your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and your purity. In other words, walk the talk, right? It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that there won't be... I mean, a, a huge way to walk the talk is to be quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to repent when you've blown it. Um, that's part of uh, embodying this message as well and giving an example. So in the whole of his life, he's to do this. He's to practice these things, verse 15, and immerse himself in them, to give himself completely to these things in order that all would see his progress. So, And then it's all summarized here for us in verse 16. This is a great summary to, to Timothy from Paul. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, huge point here. There's a call to persevere in this, to keep a watch on himself and on the teaching. Um, and, and here's, I think maybe just to we can close with this. This gets at how critical correct teaching is and how dangerous false teaching is. Because he says there, by, by so doing, you're going to save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, if they do give themselves to this false message, this false teaching, this false gospel, salvation is at stake. To be led down this path and to, be continue, to, to go down this path where ultimately you have lost sight of Jesus, you've walked away from Jesus and His work on the cross, and you've gone this other route, is to walk away from the one place where salvation is to be found. That is the weight of, uh, and the, the seriousness with which Timothy must take this call because it's a life-or-death situation for his people. Persist in this because by so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Um, yeah, it's 1045. Um, we'll wrap up there. Uh, next week we're going to look at this next section where Paul gets into some more specific instructions uh, for the church um, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to talk more. You can send me an email or um, grab me afterwards to talk more about uh, verse 10 if you've got questions on that. Let me pray for us and we'll go into worship. Father, thank you uh, for the grace of the gospel that comes to us. Uh, we who uh, are sinners are and are in need. Uh, we thank you uh, that Jesus has given himself for us and that now we can pursue him and know that He is at work changing us and making more and more, making us more and more into His own image, remaking the image of God in us. We pray that we would give ourselves to those things and that we would know uh, the gracious effect of Your transformation in our lives, uh, and that we would pursue those things with joy. Um, we pray that You would do that now for those of us going into worship and uh, be with those who have worshipped already and are going from this place. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.